Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we look at healthcare on the ballot from two sides of the coin with Emily G from the Progressive Center for American Progress and Joseph Antos from the Conservative American Enterprise Institute. Most people in America support, you know, women in America support the right to choose, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, legislatures won't go the other way. We've already seen some really draconian bans on abortion. Laura Robertson checks in from factcheck.org and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Martin Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Early voting has already started in some parts of the United States as Americans make important decisions about who they want to represent them. The polls show that health-related issues are some of the most important ones to voters this year. Joining us to discuss health care on the ballot are policy experts from two prominent Washington, D.C. think tanks. Emily G., Ph.D., is the vice president and coordinator for health policy at the Center for American Progress. G has worked on the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, and she was an economist on the staff of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama White House. And Joseph Antos, PhD, is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He served in high-level positions at the White House for Congress and at the agency level. Well, welcome to both of you to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start with Joe. Uh, The Republicans have released their policy agenda called Commitment to America, and it includes wording about personalized care and lowering prices through transparency, choice, and competition. But it's a bit vague on details, but it does. I'm wondering if it it aligns with your thinking, and and tell us why. It's not surprising that uh, uh, Republicans for the midterm are are not being very specific about uh, health policy. Health policy really, I think for Republicans, is is really not high on, on their agenda right now. Um, but the but the other factor, which I think is often overlooked, is that they don't want to get ahead of whoever their candidate's going to be in 2024. Uh, you know that said, yeah, the the idea of promoting an efficient uh, healthcare system, uh, working off of the current system that we have today, which is a mixed pu- public private system with regulation, that that makes a lot of sense, uh, and and to to try to create those efficiencies, I think there are you know, several key components. One, one clearly is that uh, uh, consumers, patients, and their doctors need to have a better idea about not only what things cost, but also how effective the treatments are likely to be and uh, whether there are alternatives. I think that's really critically important. But what really matters is healthcare. And what people care about is, am I gonna get the care I want? at the time I need it, uh, will it be good care and will I be able to afford it? I think those are the big issues. Well, thank you uh, for those comments, Joe. And uh, Emily, let me turn to you. Your think tank uh, has the word progress right in its name and, and CAP is known for its progressive stance. As you say on your website, your mission is focused on improving the lives of all Americans who bold and progressive ideas as well as uh, strong leadership and action. So maybe tell us where does CAP stand on health policy and any points of difference from what we heard from Joe? So I think when I think about health, health policy and in particular health equity, there it's more than just the healthcare system. And there are a, a, you know, a variety of ways in which we try to approach this, this issue. One piece of health equity is of course healthcare system itself. Um, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which passed back in, um, in August is a big step toward those goals, helping decrease the cost of coverage for millions of Americans, um, giving 
seniors protection they didn't previously have against out-of-pocket costs for, for uh, drugs and Medicare. Um, but it also, that together with a couple of the other big pieces of legislation that passed in the last couple of years, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the CHIPS bill, um, aren't necessarily health care bills per se, but they do advance health because they take care of what we call social determinants of health or the factors that influence what goes into health. Um, part of achieving health is getting the health care that we need, having health coverage, but a large part of it is about the environment that we live in. Do you have access to clean water and clean food? Uh, do you live in a safe neighborhood? And so in particular, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure uh, the Investment and Jobs Act do affect our environment and help address climate change, making historic investments, not just in addressing climate change, but making sure that money goes to underserved communities. And so, um, you know, our hope is with equitable distribution of the funding available in those bills, um, we can prevent situations like we just had in Jackson, Mississippi, where a predominantly black community with very outdated water infrastructure didn't have access to clean water for two weeks. And that has knock-on effects to the ability of businesses to operate, the ability for kids to go to school. And so taking care of our, both our built and natural environment is really a key component for health. Well, let's make sure we're, we're clear on where each of you are in relation to, to the candidates in the ballot. So a question to both of you, generally, would you agree Republican candidates are linked to AEI support for what it calls pro-market solutions to our nation's healthcare issues and that the Democrats are aligned with the Center for American Progress view uh, of a shared prosperity model? So, um, yeah, probably uh, that's true. I think there's a general understanding about uh, market-oriented principles and the need to uh, mm -hmm. create incentives that lead to a more efficient healthcare uh, system. But but also, as as Emily said, we need to make sure that it is a fair system. We need to make sure that people who need the help get the help. So I would for for Cap, I would say you know we are open to working with people, you know, any and all political parties. But our vision for what healthcare system uh, would look like is universal coverage. It's mm -hmm. a place where everybody has access to healthcare um, and everybody has the ability to achieve their full health potential, both because they have good healthcare, but also a good environment and good nutrition and good access to education. All the other things are so important for um, a good start in life. Um, and I think, you know, there are probably also areas where maybe Joe and I would ag agree if I could go on that limb. You know, I, I, I do think there are, places in healthcare where um, we do need better competition. One of them is um, among uh, providers in healthcare where, you know, because of consolidation in the market for healthcare providers and insurers, um, consumers are often not getting a good deal on the price of healthcare. A question for both of you in a little bit different vein. The Biden administration has extended the COVID public health emergency order for another 90 days. Uh, Emily, maybe uh, let me ask you, you've supported this move uh, maybe why, what does it provide for? And uh, is it possible for this to continue when the president has said that COVID's over? How do, we, how do we go forward with that? So we are still dealing with the effects of the pandemic. Um, I think we are entering a new phase in which, um, you know, fortunately, even as cases are, are up and, you know, may rise into the winter, we're not seeing that same spike in hospitalizations. And that is because vaccines work. You know, we have, um, in the new bivalent vaccines that give us protection not only against the original strains of the virus, but against the Omicron variants. Um, the government has ordered, you know, more than 100 million doses of that. So there's plenty to go around. Um, and I think getting that vaccination will be important for, uh, you know, for maintaining 
our nation's health um, going into the winter. Um, but you know, this continued preparedness and and um, keeping up with new variants will require sustained funding for public health. My hope is that Congress will provide um, you know, funding for continued COVID readiness as well as uh, shoring up the public health system um, that has been so badly battered by the pandemic. The Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade earlier this year, and Senator Lindsey Graham has, has introduced a proposed national ban that would prohibit abortion after 15 weeks nationwide with only a few narrow exceptions. I'm wondering if you both agree that more limits to abortion will occur if Republicans take control of Congress and gain more power in state legislatures. Joe? No, no. Uh, this is a very personal kind of an issue. Uh, I think uh, both sides on this issue have tried to blow it up into public policy. I think this is not a topic that needs to be legislated on. It may well be the case that in some states, uh, they will uh, clamp down uh, a, a bit more in terms of the period of time over which uh, abortion is, is permitted. Uh, that is apparently their right under the Constitution. I'm not a lawyer, I couldn't tell you. But, uh, but I think this is a, a very sensitive issue that is, that is uh, not going to be something that, uh, that at least Republicans will be talking about at the national level. Uh, the fact that Lindsey Graham uh, uh, introduced this this proposal uh, 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 doesn't mean that Republicans uh, will go for it. In fact, uh, there's been largely silence uh, from the Republican Party on this, and I, I think they are not willing to touch it at the national level. Well, before Emily responds, though, Joe, uh, if, if the Republicans take control of the Senate, uh, is it that you don't believe whether it will be up or down that Graham won't be able to get it on the floor for, for a vote. That's right. Uh, th this is something that uh, uh, you can only come, uh, people will not view uh, any action in this area uh, uh, as uniformly favorable. And uh, every politician uh, uh, wants to do uh, things that, uh, that are favored by the constituents rather than uh, controversial among their constituents. And this is a controversy that is true in, in uh, every state and in every uh, congressional district. Emily. So my colleagues and I certainly believe, you know, this is a, this is a deeply personal issue for women and you know, should be something that they choose and something that they are allowed to consult with their physicians on. Um, you know, it's, it's also, uh, you know, most people in America support, you know, women in America support a right to choose, but that doesn't mean that, um, you know, legislatures won't go the other way. We've already seen some really draconian um, bans on abortion, you know, preventing at the very early stages where women may not even know they are pregnant. Um, and, you know, laws that don't have exceptions for cases like rape or incest or life of the mother. Um, so I am, very fearful of what could happen if uh, you know conservatives take stronger control of state legislatures. Um, right after the Dobbs case, the Dobbs decision was handed down, we saw a handful of states enact um, you know so-called trigger bans or you know pre-row uh, uh, sorry uh, you know pre pre-existing bans on abortion, and they were you know. They were very eager to put those into effect um, as soon as the court decision came down. But, but Emily, we also saw Kansas, which I believe is a pretty conservative state, actually turn it down. What, what's your sense of 
uh, it, it didn't seem to break on party lines there. So I think that is, you know, that 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 is hopefully part of a trend um, of voters either, you know, rejecting bans or hopefully adopting constitutional amendments mm -hmm. that would protect a woman's right to abortion at the state level. Well, I think uh, we are all in for an interesting time watching the returns uh, as the election uh, arrives on our doorstep. But certainly a group of very engaged voters, usually uh, our, our senior population, and certainly a population that we're all concerned about. And, and Joseph, I wonder if you comment, uh, Bloomberg's reporting that House Republicans will enact Social Security and Medicare eligibility changes. Uh, maybe spending caps and safety net work requirements uh, if they win the majority. I kind of have thought of those as that classic third rail that people wouldn't uh, touch. These are such popular programs. Uh, do you think that's likely? Should seniors be worried? Well, let's distinguish between the programs. I think you've mixed a couple of programs up. Uh, no politician in his right mind or her right mind uh, would uh, 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 announced that they're going to cut social security benefits. There may be a need to address social security funding. That's not the same thing as cutting the benefits. Um, on uh, Medicare, I think the same is absolutely true. And there's obviously a need, given that the Part A trust fund, Medicare trust fund that covers the cost of hospital services and other inpatient services, uh, the Part A trust fund, uh, uh, will become insolvent in the next uh, few years, probably sooner, uh, sooner than uh, later, uh, because the assumptions that uh, went into that estimate uh, are we're overly uh, optimistic about how the economy is going. We're clearly in a recession. We're clearly in a high inflation time. These were not taken fully into account uh, in the latest trustees report. So things are going to happen. They're going to have to happen. But touching benefits is really very difficult for a politician. It's much easier to do what they've always done traditionally, which is to cut payments to providers mm -hmm. and hope that that doesn't uh, restrict uh, access in any serious way. I think that's probably where it's going to be going. Um, uh, now, what you did refer to, which I think is an issue for Republicans, has to do with the expansion of Medicaid eligibility and whether uh, there is a social compact with people on Medicaid or on welfare programs in general, do they have uh, some obligation if they are able to, and if the opportunity is, is given to them to give back to the community? I think that's the question. That was certainly an issue uh, during the last administration. I think it will be an issue uh, in the future as well. Uh, uh, the uh, Biden administration has made it perfectly clear by by reversing all of the all of the approvals for uh, states that uh, wanted to try something different with their Medicaid programs uh, over the past few years. They've reversed all of those uh, waivers, uh, and uh, so uh, I, I'm sure that our Republicans will be talking about this over the next two years. But that won't change the Biden administration's position on it. I think there is a legitimate question, given that we have similar requirements uh, for social responsibility for welfare programs, that uh, where uh, a, a beneficiary uh, in the Medicaid uh, program is uh, able uh, and where the opportunity is available, 
the idea that uh, there should be some social responsibility requirement, I think resonates very well with a lot of people and certainly resonates uh, very much with uh, Republicans. You know, Emily, I well, want to pick you. up. Thank you, and I should have uh, clarified. Oh, sorry, Mark, go ahead. No, Emily, go I wanted ahead. to sort of pick up on Joe's comments about benefits, because you've written about the, uh, a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act, how it will save families thousands of dollars, including health care costs. But it, I'm wondering if it impacts the election, because the getting to the insulin at $35 uh, goes into January past the election. Is this something that's really resonating right now? Are people connecting that these are on their way? And is it translating, do you think, into uh, opportunities for Democrats? Or uh, is it, you know, sh show me, I'm from Missouri, show me it in my paycheck or in my Social Security benefits. But until then, I don't believe you. I, I think these reforms will make a big difference. Um, I, you know, there, there are multiple components to the drug reforms that were in the Inflation Reduction Act. One um, is allowing Medicare to negotiate lower prices for drugs, um, which is a wildly popular proposal, uh, you know, now law, um, across not just Democrats, but Republicans and you know, voters of all, all affiliations. Um, and it also stops drug companies from hiking prices. Um, it, uh, the law will forced for companies to pay rebates back to the Medicare program if they raise their prices above the rate of inflation. Um, but even less abstract, you know, are these are these parts that will protect seniors from out of high out-of-pocket costs. And I do think, um, you know, many people are eager to see those go into place. And they are, you know, very tangible, very understandable mm -hmm. ben benefits for people who have high drug costs. Um, that $35 cap on out-of-pocket costs for insulin goes into place just two and a half months from now. Um, the $2,000 cap on drug spending in both Medicare Advantage and Part D standalone drug plans um, will take a couple more years to implement, but that too is something that seniors will, you know, see and, um, you know, I think it will be very real to American families. Well, Emily, CAP recently published a report uh, that stated that the federal public option uh, would improve health equity across the United States. Uh, but Joseph, I think you've written that uh, federal public option is unlikely to deliver the market transformation that some advocates predict. I wonder, uh, Joe, could you explain your perspective? And then Emily, if we have time, we'd like you to comment as well. Well, I, well, first of all, I don't believe that anybody's really talking about a federal public option. A number of states have attempted to uh, create a so-called public option, Colorado being the first one that comes to mind. And the states that have tried to do this uh, actually uh, have been highly unsuccessful. Uh, I mean, in many people's minds, a public option is something, is, is a health plan that's run by a, a government, uh, state or federal possibly. Uh, uh, in the case of the states that have attempted this, uh, none of them uh, have uh, taken on the task of uh, having the state government run a health plan. They're not, they're not good at it, for one thing. Instead, their, their strategy has been to try to impose requirements on existing private health plans, and more importantly, uh, a requirement on providers, especially hospitals, to participate in, in what are essentially discount plans where the provider is uh, required in some in some states to accept much lower payment rates than than they typically get uh, from uh, commercial insurers. That hasn't worked out well for Colorado. That hasn't worked out for other states as well. 
the fact is that there is a public option already in a sense uh, in, uh, in the federal government. The ACA created it. Uh, it's called the exchange plans. And if you're eligible for it, then there's your public option. And the fact is that uh, 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 only about 6 million people uh, in this country, uh, uh, 6 million citizens of this country uh, are uh, not insured. Maybe it's about 8 million now. I'm not sure what the exact number is, but it's a relatively low number compared to the 350 million people we have in this country. Uh, and uh, most of those people who aren't covered uh, have uh, options that they could pursue, and for some reason they haven't pursued them. Mm -hmm. So I think I think we we're, we're largely covered out of this. I would I would argue that the ACA has largely solved the coverage problem. Uh, it did not solve the cost problem, but it solved the, the coverage problem. And uh, you know, three cheers for that. Emily, response. Emily, anything? You, oh, yeah, sorry, sure. Emily, did you want to comment or respond to that? Yes. So I will say that the exchanges are working. I mean, they were not designed to substitute for employer-sponsored insurance or you know, supplant existing public programs. They were designed to fill a gap for people who didn't have either an employer or a public um, program option like Medicare and Medicaid. Um, prior to the ACA, people faced uh, higher premiums if they had a preexisting condition or for being a woman or for being older um, with no limit. And so what the exchanges were designed to do or the ACA plans or Obamacare, whatever you like to call them, um, is fill that gap. And they've been very successful. Um, it's actually 14.5 million people, a record high, who are enrolled in marketplace coverage this year. Um, and the uh, ACA marketplaces, in addition to Medicaid policy, have helped uh, the U.S. weather the pandemic, um, even though there was a lot of uh, you know, job loss, income loss during the pandemic, the uninsurance rate in the country held steady because those affordable options were available out there for coverage. Can I make one other comment about the public option? If uh, Democrats were to try to push through a federal public option, the first plans that would be hit by it would of course be the AC exchange plans. Unless of course, the public option wasn't a better deal. So uh, this is, this is not a, a shrewd political idea, and it's not very good policy. Emily G. with CAP and yep. Joe Antos with AEI, thank you both for your insights. We look forward to your future writings and ideas. Uh, thank you to our audience for being here, and you can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our emails, updates at chcradio.com. Thank you both again. Thank you. Thank you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention hosted an online seminar about the treatment of blood clots, which is expected to grow as the U.S. population ages and the obesity rate increases. But some vaccine opponents misrepresented the webinar to falsely suggest that the projected rise in blood clots is related to the COVID-19 vaccines. It's not. Most of the people attending the webcast were healthcare providers. But anti-vaccine campaigners posted videos online about the CDC seminar, 
highlighting a CDC synopsis of the event that said experts estimated the number of patients needing anticoagulant care to prevent blood clots would double by the year 2050. The Post baselessly suggested this was related to COVID-19 vaccination. But the webinar explained that for several years before the COVID-19 pandemic, studies have said there will be an increased need for anticoagulant care. That's because two common medical conditions requiring blood thinners are expected to increase as the population gets older and obesity increases. The conditions are atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism, or blood clots that start in a vein. The expert featured in the webinar, Allison Burnett, president of the Anticoagulation Forum, told us the expected increase in anticoagulant care has nothing to do with COVID-19 vaccination. In fact, she said a person is much more likely to get a blood clot after being infected with COVID-19 than they are to get a clot after being vaccinated. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. It's estimated that a majority of a person's lifelong health expenditures are often spent in the final months of life. But death is one of those topics that generates the least amount of conversation in the clinical setting in American healthcare. For folks who end up critically ill or facing a terminal diagnosis, this can often lead to poorly communicated end-of-life wishes being discussed with the clinician who then often resorts to extreme interventions. Um, in oncology, you know, there's a, a desire to want to provide patients with truth. However, there's this unspoken misconception that by having honest conversations about prognosis, that we are somehow removing the hope And actually, most studies that have evaluated this have shown that when you provide honest prognostic information to patients and allow patients to be part of the decision-making about their goals of care, they are more appreciative of it. Dr. Manali Patel at Stanford University School of Medicine sought to find interventions that might give clinicians and families a more useful tool to address this gap in communication. Her earlier research at Stanford had yielded an interesting finding. Late-stage cancer patients felt more comfortable talking about end-of-life issues with a layperson as opposed to a clinician. She and her fellow researchers followed patients at the Veterans Administration Palo Alto Healthcare System after they were diagnosed with stage 3 or 4 or recurrent cancer. Half the people were randomly assigned to speak with a lay worker about the goals of care over a six-month period. And the lay workers were given a rigorous 80-hour course and clinical observations before being assigned to the study. She learned as she went. And then at the end, 
she came to that realization that these conversations really are not scary. And we had hired her specifically because of her service orientation. And that's really the main crux of this intervention was finding the right person who can engage in these conversations. 92% of the participants who received the layperson intervention, compared to only 18% of the control group, were likely to have end-of-life directives in their electronic health record, often choosing hospice over emergency room interventions as their conditions deteriorate. The average cost of care for the intervention group in the last month of life was about $1,000 versus $23,000 for the control group. We found that the satisfaction scores went up for the patients in the intervention arm, but they went down for patients in the control arm. A low-resource, compassionate, patient-centered intervention that assists terminally ill patients, their families, and their clinicians to have a frank discussion about end-of-life wishes, improving patient satisfaction at such a sensitive and challenging time, and saving significant costs as well, that's a bright idea. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded in the Knowledge and Technology Center studios in Middletown, Connecticut, and is brought to you by the Community Health Center, now celebrating 50 years of providing quality care to the underserved, where healthcare is a right, not a privilege. CHC1.com and chcradio.com.